This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2017, held at Faith Builders on August 1 through 4. All right, Friday, the last day. Here we are. Are you, are you really up here by yourself on the front row, sir? Excellent. You deserve chocolate. Okay. So yesterday, uh, I ran out of time. I didn't want to break that cardinal rule about don't go over time. It's rarely worth it. But then I thought, you know, I should have just told my story at the end that uh, I wanted to end with. So I'll start with that today about collaboration. There was once a man who was driving his car and uh, he went off into the ditch and got stuck. Fortunately, there was a farmer nearby plowing with a mule and a farmer said, oh yeah, Chadwick here, he can pull you, pull you out of the ditch. So the farmer hitched the mule up to the car and when he got ready to go, he said, go Sally, go Betsy, go Jim, go Chadwick. And Chadwick pulled the car out and the guy said, why'd you call all those other names? Well, the guy said, Chadwick here is blind and he's a stubborn mule. He wouldn't have pulled you out by himself, but if he believes he's pulling with a team, then he'll work. So. A quote here, there's a synergy that comes from being part of a group with a common goal or task. Uh, some of us played soccer last night. Uh, I'm not too stiff this morning, but uh, you know, what was the point of that? Just kicking the ball down to one end and then kicking it back up to the other, you know, it, maybe that's why the rest of you didn't play because it was pointless. But uh, you know, we had a lot of fun doing that. There was a synergy that came from working together as a group. And so when we think about collaboration, that's what you're trying to capitalize on. Just you're a team with your students in the classroom in what you're trying to do together. And especially teenagers really enjoy working together. So capitalize on that energy to be a team to learn about loving God and loving our neighbors. So in review, educating for the kingdom requires getting at the heart of a matter and taking action. Getting at the heart of something and knowing what action to take. Both require thinking which is hard work, and probably why so few engage in it. Perhaps one of the greatest gifts we can give our students is to teach them to think. Learning isn't just learning, it's learning how to learn. So, let's start with a story about critical, that will perhaps cause you to do some critical thinking. Three impossible gifts. Long ago in ancient China, two sisters married the oldest sons of a prosperous man in a village, about a day's journey from where they were born. As was the custom of the day, the young brides moved into their husband's family's home. The sisters were glad to have married such a fine family and be able to see each other every day. Things seemed to be perfect now for them in their new life, but it wasn't always to please their, easy to please their father-in-law, who was the head of the household. Before long, they both became homesick and asked if they could be allowed to go see their father and mother. In those times, they needed to have permission from the head of the household to go anywhere. So the father-in-law agreed to let them go on a short visit. After they got back, they went visiting on a regular basis, and the father-in-law began to get weary of these requests. So the next time they asked to leave, he asked them to bring him three gifts. And if they could not find what he wanted, they would never be allowed to visit their parents again. The girls were so excited, they did not think so much, so they agreed. And they didn't realize that he had asked them for three impossible things. He wanted them to bring fire and paper, water and paper, 
and air and paper. They sat down by the side of the road and started to cry. But it wasn't long before a girl on a water buffalo came by and asked the sisters why they were so upset. When she heard their problem, she laughed and helped them find exactly what they needed. When the sisters returned carrying the gifts that were requested, the father-in-law was surprised and pleased. No one else had been able to bring him fire and paper, water and paper, and wind and paper, so he agreed to allow them to see their relatives as often as they wished. So, what did they bring him back? Any ideas? Fire and paper? Anyone? This is from China. You ever seen a Chinese lantern? What about water and paper? Anyone? You never used a paper cup? Originally from China? What about wind and paper? Some of the ladies might have these in their purse. So, critical thinking, a definition, or since uh, this is a hard subject, how about several definitions for you? The objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment, or, and you don't have to write all this down, a mode of thinking about any subject, content, or problem which the thinker improves the quality of his or her thinking. So it's, in a sense, thinking about how to think, or thinking, am I thinking what I should be thinking, or am I thinking in the right way? And finally, critical thinking is self-corrective thinking. So if you're jotting this down, maybe you just want to go for the bold points there. So don't get hung up on all the big definitions. Uh, basically, it's thinking about thinking, or even more simply, thinking hard. We're not just teaching facts, we're teaching them how to learn. How many of you would say that you're familiar with this term critical thinking? You, you, you're familiar with this term. Okay, so most of you, but not all of you. All right, so this is, this is what we mean today as I talk about critical thinking. Thinking well, thinking through something, and thinking about whether I'm thinking about it in the right way, or do I always just get stuck in the same pattern? So self-corrected, improving the quality, analyzing things. Why is critical thinking so hard? First of all, thinking tends to focus on surface structure. Educators have long noted that school attendance and even academic success are no guarantee that a student will graduate an effective thinker in, a, in all situations. For example, a student may have learned how to estimate the answer to a math problem as a way of checking the accuracy of his answer, but then down the hall in the chemistry lab, the same student calculates the components of a compound without notice, noticing that his estimates sum to more than 100%. Maybe it was some of those extra chemicals that Melvin said they added. Or a student has learned to thoughtfully discuss the causes of the American Revolution from the British and American perspectives. Good critical thinking. It doesn't even question how the Germans want, viewed World War II. It just thinks from the American perspective. So why are students able to think critically in one situation but not in another and transfer that knowledge? So the brief answer is thinking tends to focus on surface structure. In other words, we make assumptions. We jump from this to that without deciding whether we should have. Thought processes are intertwined 
with what is being thought about, what we are used to or what we have been exposed to. So for example, take this problem. A treasure hunter is going to explore a cave and he's a little nervous because he figures, you know, there might be various pathways in that cave and I might get lost. But all he has with him are, and he has no map of the cave, all he has with him are a flashlight and a bag. What could he do to make sure he does not get lost trying to get back out of the cave later? Any suggestions? Flashlights are good in caves, but there's different paths. So something about the bag? I, sorry, I still can't hear. Let it sit? Okay. But maybe it'll come back a different path. So that's, that's good. You're started. Can you put things in bags? <clears throat> Ever hear of Hansel and Gretel? How many of you are familiar with Hansel and Gretel? Okay. Any ideas now? Leave a trail. Leave a trail. So sand, stones, pebbles, whatever. Put them in the bag and then leave a trail behind. So 75% of American college students thought of this solution, but only 25% of Chinese students solved it. And researchers assume it's because the Westerners are familiar with the Hansel and Gretel story, which includes the idea of leaving a trail. So the experimenters gave the subjects another puzzle based on a common Chinese folktale and the percentage of solvers from each culture reversed. So we tend to solve with what we're already exposed to, the way we already think, what we were currently thinking, the last experience we had with this situation, so on and so forth. We just go with the surface. Deep structure is looking for what is underneath the surf surface story. So for instance, a student might come across two math problems. They're, they're right in a row, right next to each other in the book. The one is about vegetables. Uh, it could be a division problem, I don't know, you know, wonderful word problem. You have uh, 12 radishes and you're dividing them into four rows, how much would be in each row? And then another question that is about something else. It's not about vegetables, but it also is a division word problem and you're dividing um, something else. And the student comes up, oh, I don't know how to do this one. I knew how to do the one about vegetables, but I don't know how to do this one. But perhaps they could both be solved by, for instance, in this example, finding the least common multiple, um, something like that. Maybe both of them could be solved in the same way, or they're both a division um, kind of problem. But the student doesn't recognize it because one was about radishes and the other was about um, cars or something else, people at the circus. So some math curriculums really hound on learning the type of problem it is so that students will recognize that. That's getting to deep thinking, to critical thinking, rather than just, ah, how many radishes are going to be in the row? Um, how should I go about solving this problem? So it's hard work. It takes practice. And perhaps that's why it's so hard. <clears throat> so take the time to help your students think through things. Of course, elementary, my dear Watson. I always enjoyed Sherlock Holmes as a youngster. And uh, for those of you that are familiar with this phrase, uh, it simply has to do with the fact that 
Watson would be surprised. So the first time Watson met Holmes, his friend, Holmes says, Ah, you've been in Afghanistan, I see. How'd you know that? You know, and then he proceeds to say some things. Um, your, your skin was dark, but the wrists were fair. He is undergoing hardship and sickness and where in the tropics could an English army doctor have seen so much hardship and, you know, clearly in Afghanistan because there was currently a war going on there. So he did make some jumps to other knowledge, like, oh, there's currently a war going on here and you're an army doctor, therefore you came from Afghanistan. So Sherlock Holmes is an example in literature of someone who's thinking deep structure and not just going with the surface things. And everybody who thinks surface things is surprised. How in the world did Holmes come up with that? All right, so critical thinking. We want to graduate thoughtful students. We know that we should be critical thinkers and think hard. What are we going to do in the middle? Again, we'll be following the format, how did Jesus teach with critical thinking? How, can, how do others teach with critical thinking? And how can I teach with critical thinking? So how did Jesus teach with critical thinking? First of all, logic. He was very logical. Consider the exchange found in Luke 13, verses 14 to 16. Jesus was continually attacked for his supposed violations of the Sabbath. In this passage, Jesus presents an argument in his defense as follows. Verse 14 of Luke 13. And the ruler of the synagogue asked with indignation because the Jews had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which man ought to work, and in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So, let's break this down. Premise number one. Loosening the cattle from their stall and taking them out to water on the Sabbath is widely practiced and accepted by the Pharisees. So we're starting on the same ground. Premise two. This woman, a daughter of Abraham, far more valuable than cattle, we might add, has been bound by Satan for 18 years and has also been loosed on the Sabbath. Conclusion. Therefore, it is, if it is acceptable to loosen cattle on the Sabbath, then it should be even more acceptable to loosen a daughter of Abraham. Hmm. Consider the words of Jesus in Luke 11, 23, where Jesus confronts the Pharisees with two disjunctive syllogisms in the same verse as follows. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth, gathereth not with me scattereth. Premise one, either you are with me or you are against me. They were obviously not with him, since they were attacking him. Therefore, they were against him. And in the second part of the verse, premise one, either you gather with me or you scatter. They were obviously not gathering with him, therefore they were scattering. Or consider the words of Jesus in John 8, 47, where he has been engaged in a long series of arguments with the scribes and Pharisees that leads to this powerful argument. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Premise one. If you are of God, then you hear God's words. Premise two, you hear them not. 
Conclusion, therefore you are not of God. So, I've lost some of you and some of your elementary teachers who think this has absolutely nothing to do with you. But the, and the good news is we're moving on soon. But just think about it this way. There's no better time to help students think about whether their writing makes sense than when they're learning to write or whether their thinking makes sense when they're starting to think at the younger grades. So simply asking questions like, did he really nail his eye to the wall in their writing can help them see things that we'd otherwise just laugh about after school with the other teachers. Secondly, Jesus gave alternatives uh, to a dilemma that the Pharisees would place him in. They were constantly trying to trap Jesus, plotted and schemed, and this is known in philosophy as a dilemma, and sometimes uh, being, it's expressed as being between the horns of a dilemma. So they were always trying this, but Jesus never got trapped. For instance, Matthew 22, 15 to 22, the Pharisees took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. They present Jesus with a dilemma in regarding the paying of tribute or taxes to Caesar. The two horns are presented in verse 17. What thinkest that? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Mm -hmm. If Jesus answered it was lawful, then he was recognizing that Caesar is a higher authority. Then he was. If Jesus answered no, then he would be declaring himself an enemy of Caesar. And they would have him. However, they never anticipated Jesus' response. Just like your students will never anticipate your response, right? Jesus presented a third alternative. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. As was usually the case, they marveled and left him and went their way. Jesus' brilliance was enough to leave anyone, even his most ardent opponents, speechless and in awe. Or Matthew 22, some Sadducees try to trick Jesus. That same day, some Sadducees came to Jesus and asked him a question. And I'll go through this quickly. You're familiar with it, perhaps. Teacher, Moses told us that if a married man dies and had no children, then his brother must marry the woman, and then they will have children for the dead brother. And there were seven brothers, and the first brother married, but he died. This is getting complicated. He had no children, so then his brother married the woman, and the second brother also died, and then the same thing happened to the third brother, and then all the other brothers, so we're going to get him. And the woman was the last to die, but also, so... Whose wife will she be? Jesus answered, You're so wrong. You don't know what the scriptures say. You don't know about God's power. At the time people rise from the dead, there will be no marriage. People will not be married to be each other. We'll be like the angels in heaven. Surely you have read what God said. And then he comes back to scripture. God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So they were not still dead. Because he is only God of living people. When the people heard this, they were amazed at Jesus' teaching. So he exposed their wrong assumption or their wrong basis. And there are other places. Um, the Pharisees learned that Jesus had made the Sadducees look so foolish, foolish that they st stopped trying to argue with him. That's in a later verse. So the Pharisees had a meeting. Then one of them, an expert in the law of Moses, asked Jesus a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which command in the law is the most important? 
So you get that? The Pharisees got together. They put their heads together and they said, boy, those Sadducees, they lost out. But we're going to get them. Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and most important command. And the second command is like the first. Love your neighbor. <clears throat> all the law and writings of the prophets take their meaning from these two commands. So we'll move on. But there are other places where they tried to trap Jesus. And you can study those places to find out how Jesus got out of it by pre presenting alternatives. And at the end there it says none of the Pharisees could answer Jesus' question. Um, this was the question about David calls him Messiah, Lord, so how can he be David's son? None of them could answer. And after that day, no one was brave enough to ask him any more questions. So hopefully that doesn't happen to you. Hopefully your students ask you questions. But if you use critical thinking with authority, you might be able to get them to stop asking those stupid questions. Luke 9.18. Whom say the people that I am? Why did Jesus ask that? Didn't he know who the people were saying he was? He wanted to find out from the disciples? Well, maybe. Probably not. Likely it was a teaching moment for the disciples or even a warm-up question, a getting them talking question. <clears throat> you know, why didn't Jesus just say, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God? It would have been a lot safer that way. So Jesus asked questions, and we're going to look at uh, some different types of questions he asked here. So first of all, this warm-up question um, can lead to a deeper question. In the next verse, then, he said, uh, who, or a later verse, who do you say that I am? So he started with the warm-up question and then got more personal. So before you ask a personal question, ask a lead-up question. That's the one thing we learned from this. Another thing we learned is that uh, questions might not feel safe to you, especially as a newer or beginning teacher. Uh, you might not want to ask a question or be as comfortable asking a question, an open-ended question, because you're not sure where it's going to go and whether you can control the class. You might be tempted to just tell them things. This is the way it is. But I encourage you to use questions like Jesus. Uh, so it, it might not feel safe but it can, but don't be scared of it. It can lead to deeper things. So Jesus chose this teaching method of a question. Why? Because the answers change lives. Jesus knew in the later verse then, when Peter declared him to be the Christ of God, that Peter would be changed by this declaration. Jesus taught that we are changed as much by what we say as what we hear. Mark 7.15, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. So what a man speaks makes him clean. This is why the Bible makes a big deal about if you confess with your mouth. It is not that God needs to hear you say, uh, say it out loud. It's not even that others need to hear it's that you need to say it because when you confess the truth with your mouth, you are changed by that truth. So our students will learn it when they say it. So a reason to use questions is because if you say it, it's just another noise in the classroom like that hum up there, perhaps. But if you ask a question and get them to say it, 
then they're more likely to learn it and remember it. So, warm up questions, don't be afraid of questions. Answering questions with questions is another way uh, that Jesus used questions. This was normal for Jesus to answer with a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? So this can be disarming, especially if it's a, a loaded question that comes to you. Like, why do we have to learn this stuff? Because you launch into a sermon. How about answering a question with a question? Do you really want to know? What do you think? Or even, would you rather write an essay on 10 reasons why you shouldn't have to learn this? But listening and hearing from them makes it less argumentative. So responding to a question with a question can be wise, especially in a lot of cases Jesus knew they were just trying to trap him. Another type of question is a rhetorical question. Mark 8:12. Jesus used rhetorical questions to emphasize a point in a powerful but non-combative manner. manner. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Communicates better than, you stubborn group of unbelieving people. Such diplomacy is beneficial as a teaching skill. In Mark 8.21, questions can be used to correct. When we need to correct someone, phrasing it as a question can allow the person to make the necessary changes without losing face. Instead of saying, you are so stupid, you never understand anything. Jesus asked, do you not yet understand? This question made the point while maintaining the involvement of his participants. So when disciplining, discipling, mentoring, ask disarming questions and get the student to state what has happened. What happened or is happening. A police officer knows he has to get witnesses or the subject to talk with questions. Another type of question, simply seeking feedback in the middle of your lesson, Mark 8, 23. When healing a man of blindness, Jesus asked, do you see anything? We can ask the same kind of question throughout any teaching process. Are you with me? Do you understand? Or get them to repeat uh, something you just said. What did I just say? So this can reveal uh, their level of comprehension and keep people on track with you or find out whether they are. And finally, a soul-searching questions. In Mark 8:36, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? These types of questions reach to the heart of an issue and have no comfortable reply. One example of such a question might be, how can a church survive if it isn't in touch with the needs of the congregation? Closing with this type of question can make a strong impact. <clears throat> and if you want to do more research, um, you can just Google and Jesus answering questions with questions. And there are lots of examples. I have some of them here. Why waste this money? Why waste this perfume, they said. Jesus answered, why are you bothering this woman? <clears throat> Pharisees came and tested him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. Or some examples of these soul-searching questions that Jesus asked. 
If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Why are you so afraid? What is it you want? Those are questions that you could ponder for the rest of your life. Moving on, how do others teach with critical thinking? You know, children aren't too young to think critically. All right, just want to bring you kindergarten teachers back in here. Um, I'm intrigued with uh, how much my two-year-old son, Cedric, thinks. So, uh, last night, some of you might have heard him say, uh, when we were eating supper, he heard some rumbling upstairs. Was that thunder? Yeah, you can just see the wheels turning in his head. Or, uh, we walked into the cafeteria last night, and... Who's that man over there, he said, looking at Mr. Russell with the big beard. Maybe it reminded him of Grandpa as he stood out among all the rest of you. So you can just see little wheels turning in their head. And uh, they're not too young to ask questions and be asked questions. So I'd like to start with critical thinking in kindergarten, question mark. This is a story, an article by Heidi Paquette from Maryland. Will this really work in kindergarten, I asked myself after completing a summer training session. In the workshop, we had developed exciting ways to incorporate critical thinking into our classrooms, but I was still feeling apprehensive. Could it be that my students were just too young? So with the help of Mary Abbott, I created a fairy tale unit centered on critical thinking. Here are some examples. When we read The Little Red Hen, they had to decide if it was fair that The Little Red Hen did not share her bread. Yes, it was fair, said one student. None of the other friends did any work, so she shouldn't share. No, it wasn't fair, said another. She should share because it's the right thing to do. She wasn't being a good friend either. After reading Goldilocks and the Three Bears, I asked the children to decide which part of the story was most important. Many of them said it was when Goldilocks broke into the bear's house because if she didn't break in, there would be no problem. Others argued for the part that when the bears found Goldilocks in the baby bear's bed because that was when she was caught. The critical thinking challenge for the three-billed goat's gruff was to determine the most important item in the setting of the story. Was it the bridge, the river, or the grass? Students had to pick one and then explain why they thought it was the most important. The grass was the most important, said one student. If there was no grass on the other side of the bridge, then the goats would have had nowhere else to go or would not have anywhere else to go. The river was the most important, said another. The goats had to cross it to get to the grass. If the river wasn't there, then the goats could just walk to whatever grass they wanted, and there would be no troll. So, students learned how to justify their answers and reason with each other. Critical thinking really opens up your eyes to what your students know and how they can think. Even very young students will amaze you with how creative and thoughtful they can be. Will this work in kindergarten? Definitely. Mr. Whitson taught sixth grade science. On the first day of class, he gave us a lecture about a creature called the cattywampus, an ill-adapted nocturnal animal that was wiped out during the Ice Age. He passed around the skull as he talked. We all took notes and later had a quiz. When he returned my paper, I was shocked. There was a big red X through each of my answers. I had failed. There had to be some mistake. I had written down exactly what Mr. Whitson said. Then I realized that everyone in the class had failed. What had happened? Very simple, Mr. Whitson explained. He had made up all that stuff about the cattywampus. There never had been any such animal. The information in our notes was therefore incorrect. 
Did we expect credit for incorrect answers? Needless to say, we were outraged. What kind of test was this? What kind of teacher? We should have figured it out, Mr. Whitson said. After all, at, the, at every moment he was passing around the cattywampus skull, in truth, the cats, hadn't he been telling us that no trace of the animal remained? He had described its amazing night vision, the color of its fur, and any number of other facts he couldn't have known. He had given the animal a ridiculous name, and we still hadn't been suspicious. The zeros in our papers would be recorded in his grade book, he said, and they were. Mr. Whitson said he hoped we would learn something. Teachers and textbooks are not infallible. In fact, no one is. He told us not to let our minds go to sleep and to speak up if we ever thought that he or the textbook was wrong. Every class was an adventure with Mr. Whitson. I can still remember some science periods almost from beginning to end. One day he told us that his Volkswagen was a living organism. It took us two full days to put together a refutation he would accept. He didn't let us off the hook until we had proved not only that we knew what an organism was, but also that we had the fortitude to stand up for the truth. We carried our brand new skepticism into all of our classes, which caused problems for some of the other teachers who weren't used to being challenged. Our history teacher would be lecturing about something and then there would be clearing in the throat and somebody would say, cattywampus. <laughs> if I'm ever asked to propose a solution to the problems in our schools, it will be Mr. Whitson. I haven't made any great scientific discoveries, but Mr. Whitson's class gave me and my classmates something just as important, the courage to look people in the eye and tell them that they are wrong. He also showed us that you can have fun doing it. Not everyone sees the value in this. I once told an elementary school teacher about Mr. Whitson. The teacher was appalled. He shouldn't have tricked you like that, she said. I looked that teacher right in the eye and told her he, she was wrong. So, any volunteers? I need uh, three or four people to come up and sit on the stage, practice a little bit of critical thinking. Okay, I got one, good. All right, chocolate's good. All right, okay, more chocolate. And we got a third one. Okay, that's good. Yeah, just sit up. Uh, how about you come over to this side here, all the same place here together, you know, your little class here. So we're just going to practice some critical thinking, um, to see critical thinking in action. So I'm going to ask you whether you think critical thinking is critical to teaching. What do you think? Anybody think it's critical? Yes. You, you think? Why? Because I said so. Makes sense. In what way does it make sense? Well, if you're not smarter than the student, they're not going to have any respect for you. If you're not smarter than the student, they won't have respect. Okay. Um, how about making them think critically? Why is this important? Life has complicated problems. You need to be trained to solve them. Life has complicated problems, and you need to be trained to solve them. So, uh, let's say you're going to be. Uh, I forget whether it's a butcher or a baker, maybe a candlestick maker, okay? Uh, you think you'll need critical thinking for that? Yes. Okay. So how should we teach critical thinking for candlestick making in school? Do we have to have candlestick making class? No. Um, 
teach their brain to solve problems. Teach their brain to solve problems. And that will apply to candlestick making. Generally, yes. Generally, yes. If they know how to solve problems in one area, they'll be able to figure out another. Okay. So, solve problems in one area, it'll lead over to another. Good? Did you have something? <coughs> Along that line. Okay, good. Very good. Well, thanks for helping me out. Enjoy the chocolate and move back to your seats and have a wonderful year helping your students think critically. So don't be afraid to ask questions and lead discussions. <clears throat> How can I teach with critical thinking? So first of all, asking questions. And you saw some examples of that. Compare and contrast. We looked at this a little bit with uh, Venn diagrams. You could compare and contrast frogs and toads, um, or the whales and fish we had on the Venn diagram uh, yesterday. Case studies. For instance, uh, let's say a Bible class or relationships class. Jill and her school friends are talking after church. An interesting discussion develops regarding a girl which none of them like very well. She is just so weird and different, etc. Comments start flying. What should Jill do or say? And you can have a class discussion about that or divide them in small groups. So a case study is simply giving them a real life scenario and saying, what if? So the candlestick maker needs to make 20 candles by tomorrow, and what should he do? Real life scenarios. Rule play. We talked a little about this before. An example of uh, critical thinking. The doctor and patient in your health class have been assigned to work together to learn, to learn about a disease and then act it out for the class. So they, one is going to be the doctor, the one, the patient, and they have to research the disease, come up with a little rule play, and then present in front of the class. And doctors and nurses really need critical thinking, so they have to ask questions. So how do you feel? How long have you been feeling this way? Is there anything else that's related? Have you been feeling angry recently? And yeah, they ask all these questions. So they ask it out, or act it out. Research and writing. Don't. This is something that's been around for a long time. Don't underestimate or undervalue this. I still remember some of the reports I wrote in middle school uh, about the Spanish Armada and William Penn. Were they good quality? Not necessarily, but I remember the Spanish Armada, 1588, probably because I had to write a report about it versus the teacher just talking about it in class. So make them do research projects, and middle school is not too young to start on that. They're just smaller and not as in-depth as high school. Don't forget biographies as well in your research and writing. Bible study skills. <clears throat> um, learning how to study the Bible. This is important in our schools for critical thinking. Projects for, and, and I'm especially thinking here, projects that make them think. For instance, students have to create a country from scratch. So, they have to research what makes up a country. What do you need in order to develop our country we're going to create? Or science projects or other projects with specific goals or questions that drive them. <clears throat> and public speaking, you know, they say, studies show public speaking is close to a number one fear in our society. Some claim uh, they fear it even worse than death. I don't know if they face death or not. but. 
you know, this this is a major thing we need to work on in our schools. And again, elementary or young, uh, middle school is not too early to start. Just simply small. They need even oral reports. Okay, so when we, we think of public speaking, you might think of high school with a uh, polished speech. But in the younger grades, you can have them do oral reports and simply have them practice talking in front of the class and they had to think through something to say uh, ahead of time. <clears throat> and stories. Garrett Mor Morgan, who invented the gas mask, was the son of a former slave and no one would believe that his invention worked. Then there was a terrible fire in a tunnel 250 feet below Lake Erie and even the firemen couldn't do anything. Morgan and his brother, using the masks, went in and saved 32 people. The next thing you knew, police departments all over were sending in orders, and the gas masks used in World War I were based on his invention. Why wouldn't people trust his invention? He was, he was black, son of a former slave. You caught it. Racism is not as dead as we would like to think. And this was... Uh, hundred years, almost hundred years ago, but why wouldn't people trust his invention? Okay, and then what did it take? What turned that? Anybody know what else uh, Garrett Morgan invented that uh, you all pass under today on the way home? Probably not so much in Guy's Mills, but especially in Lancaster, the traffic light. That was after he witnessed an accident between a car and a horse-drawn carriage. So his critical thinking invented the traffic light after he saw that happen. So I'd like to end with how will you teach with critical thinking and leave you with that question. Never forget that we are teaching for a bigger purpose for the student's future, not just for the classroom. So you're preparing them for real life. So like the guy said up here, you know, we're preparing them for candlestick making. Um, you, it could be a firefighter. Uh, firefighters need to use critical thinking in the moment, in the heat of the moment. It's very important. So uh, blessings to you. I've enjoyed uh, talking with you, and I hope you've been inspired by Jesus and other examples this week to be better educate for the kingdom. Welcome to those of you that are new, and blessing to all of you as you enter your classroom soon. May his kingdom come and his will be done. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.